Welcome to the hybrid of the Mortcast and CSU Politics with a special guest. Before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee, in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, yeah, restrictions are being eased, and I'm going to go more into that later uh, with my guest. But right now, you know, restrictions being eased. You might well as well go down to the dairy block and have, enjoy some socially distanced dining. Obviously, going outside may be a little hard because it's basically the Arctic out there. But, you know, look, if you don't want to do that, go to bfwdenver.com. Get yourself the 2017 Cabernet, which is my personal favorite. Uh, they also have Pinot, which is, you know, look, it's Sonoma County grapes. So, obviously, that's going to... Uh, uh, be their specialty, but they also have partnerships with Western Slope wineries called uh, Restoration and Storm Cellars and uh, a really good winery in the Elk Mountains of Colorado near Aspen. So really, this is a local Colorado business that I know that you will enjoy. And uh, look, when I when the all this gets done and I'm vaccinated and I'm free from my COVID prison, I will definitely be making a trip to Blanchard Family Wines right in the middle of the dairy block. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, when you go in or when you talk to them, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast uh, sent you down. They're also on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest uh, Mortcast. I didn't call this a CSG special. Um, my guest today is uh, well, a very, very, very good friend of mine. I haven't had him on in a very long time. Uh, you know him as uh, the founder of FireGeorgeCarl.com <laughs> and various other blogs, including the one that eventually became uh, Denver Stiffs way back in the day. Uh, it is my friend, local businessman, Andy Feinstein. Hello, Andy. Jeffrey, great to see you. I don't know if the audience will see us. I think they're just hearing us, but great to be with you. And I love the U2 intro. And I don't think we've talked about our mutual love of U2. I'm a huge U2 fan and I am not, unlike you, I am not a big rock and roll guy and I'm yeah. certainly not a rock and roll historian, but I do love U2. I've seen them, uh, gosh, I've seen them three or four times and and uh, it's like one of the few bands that I actually know the lyrics to the songs. <clears throat> you actually went to their concert at Pepsi Center in 2015, right? I can't believe you remember the year, but for sure, if they were here, I was there. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that because um, I remember you telling me you were going to go to that, and I was very jealous. <laughs> um, I, that, yeah, in fact, I, that song I just played uh, is a very good song on a really bad album. So um, <laughs> that's exactly Which album was that one from? No Line on the Horizon. Uh, yeah, not a, yeah, not a horrible album, but I would say a weak album. It came after um, uh, what was the one before that was really good. Like right around the turn of the century, it was really good. Um, well, they, there was two. There all was the a, you can't leave all behind. All you can't I leave think, behind, and which then is an awesome to, album. And yeah, then awesome. how to how to dismantle an atomic bomb came out yeah. in uh, two thousand four. Yeah. I think songs of uh, is it songs of innocence or songs of experience? Whatever one of those new ones is is really good. Innocence is better than experience. Yeah, that's the yes. One that's innocence good. is the first one, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, way better than experience. See, yes. it just shows you innocence is better than experience. There it you is. go. It is. It is. As you, as both of both two men who are in their mid forties by now, we, we can get oh, to this. Terrifying. <laughs> um, all right, so we got to talk about Nuggets and their weird season. Um, yeah. It's just, it's just. How much have you been able to catch? I know you're, you're, you've got a lot going on, but uh, have you been able to see these games? Um, I've watched a few of them. You know, they, they, they surely don't make it easy. Uh, I have a DirecTV account at the office, so I'm able to watch it on my Altitude app mm-hmm. at home because I don't have DirecTV at home. It's kind of a pain in the butt. Um, so I've been watching when I can. Uh, if you know, the later the game, the better I can watch it just because I'm dealing with, uh, I shouldn't say dealing with, I have the pleasure of having two beautiful young children and mm-hmm. tough to watch basketball games when you've got two little children that want to watch, one of whom wants to watch Muppet babies um but um yeah it's a weird season you remember a couple things it's a weird season for everyone like you know we think about for example the toronto raptors and you know as we all know i've still got good relationships there with with masai ujiri and you know the raptors got up to this bad start you know they are they are two games away from the third seed in the east and you think about them having a bad start you think about the nuggets they've also had a bad start um the Nuggets are literally two games away from the fourth seed, which is Phoenix. Fourth, right. Two games away from the fourth seed. Right. So there's a lot of teams jumbled up. Now, of course, the, the inverse of that is the Nuggets are only two games away from being the 13th or 14th seed right. in the West. So it does go both ways. Um, I think everyone's mediocre. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Lakers seem to be the cream of the crop right now. Uh, maybe Utah to some extent. And, uh, and then, of course, the Clippers are pretty formidable. You know, the Nuggets upset of them in the playoffs, in the bubble, notwithstanding. Um, my concern with the Nuggets is a hybrid of historical and, and practical. Historically, and you know this better than anyone, the Nuggets always suck the year after they go to a conference finals. Yeah. So every time they've gone to a conference finals, they, I shouldn't say suck. They've had a, I shouldn't say that word, sorry. They have a decline the following year, right? So when they went to the conference finals in 09, they got bounced from the first round in 2010. When they went to the conference finals, in uh, 1985, they actually had a very competitive second round series with the Rockets in 86, but they lost. Mm-hmm. So every time the Nuggets climb this mountain, unfortunately, they seem to take a step back. And I'm worried that that's going to happen this year. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's a first round or a second round exit. Um, I wouldn't expect more from them. And then from a the practical standpoint, they lost three critical glue guys, you know, and mm-hmm. Jeremy Grant. Uh, which Plumley was it? Was it Mason or Miles? Mason. Mason. Uh, Mason Plumley shows you how much I pay attention. And <laughs> and 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 Tory Craig, and maybe even to a lesser extent Malik Beasley and Wancho. But they lost their glue guys. They lost the little grit that they had, which wasn't much to begin with. Right. They lost it, and it's hurting them. And their right. bench stinks. And they're gonna have a hard time taking down Utah and the Clippers again this year. They're gonna have a really hard time in right. my opinion. Yeah, and I agree. And it's, it's going to be one of those things that I just, I think the, from my perspective, the front office knew coming into the year that this was going to be a, a year where they're going to have to maybe take a, like maybe not a expectation step, step back, but in all practicality, you look at the roster as it was coming in, there was a lot of things that needed incorporated and worked in and a lot of young players. And uh, that's not a combination for exceeding, uh, your expectations. Uh, they may do that. They, but that I, this, this team is just not the same way, way it was last year. It just, it's just not. Um, there's more, been more turnover on this roster than I've seen in any other slash Western Conference subsequent year 
after the Nuggets. I mean, 86, the only thing they really replaced was uh, Dan Issel for Blair Rasmussen. And in two, uh, 2009, they got, they got uh, uh, Aaron Aflalo, who actually was making them better until George got, you know, obviously came, came down oh. with its throat cancer. So the problem, with, the problem with 2010 was they lost George Carl and they got Adrian Danley, who will mm-hmm. go down in history as the worst interim coach ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, uh, a huge step back in 2010. You always argued the 2010 team may have been better than the 2009 team had right. they been properly coached all the way to the finish right. line. Um, right. But they probably would have been smoked by the Lakers anyway. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, so look, it's Nug Life. This is the yeah. this is the world we live in. Um, yeah. Tim yeah. Connolly, who's a dear friend of both of us, we love mm-hmm. Tim Connolly, uh, was not able to steer any type of a move to get them to another level over the summer. This is where me not following the NBA, I can barely follow the Nuggets. This is where me not following the NBA is a real deficit in my life because I can't tell you and your highly educated Nuggets fan followers like what deal they should have made or could mm-hmm. made. I have no idea what people's salaries are. I don't know how many term, you know, how much term they have on these contracts, but I'm sure there's a deal out there that they should be considering. Or do you just wait and see this year? Let it play out. Let LeBron get a little older and swing for the fences next year. It, yeah, I, you know, I'm honestly, you know, as as you who have been, you know, we've known each other for a very very long time now, and I've always been a a had a seething hatred of the uh, ESPN trade machine. You know, screw you, Bill Simmons is what I say. Um, they they have this thing out there, and I and I honestly, to be honest with you, I I don't I don't know of a thing that the Nuggets could do right now. I mean, people want them to go all in for Brad Beal, I guess. I mean, it, it's just, there's right, not a lot exactly. they can do. It's not a lot they can do, to be honest with you. They kind of have to be where they are right now in order to get somewhere else. So I'm, I'm kind of accepting of it, but people are really angsty. And I, and I don't blame them following the Western Conference final run. I really don't. Yeah. So, you know what? We have to have perspective. I mean, um, it's been, a, this is a good run. I mean, look, I, I do, I know, I know I talk about the Toronto Raptors a lot just because, you know, we're, we're friends with Masai, but I think the Raptors is an interesting model. I mean, they were in the mix for six or seven years, you know, uh, first round lost, second round lost, conference finals lost, went back to the second round lost, but they were in the mix and they were competitive and they put themselves in a position to swing for the fences with the Kawhi Leonard trade. And then they won a championship. So I do think that um, patience is in order you know, we had a really crummy kind of post-mellow, pre-Jokic era here. And we're getting a little spoiled because you and I both remember the 90s when, when like, right. we had two playoff appearances out of 12 years or whatever that was. Right. So we're a little spoiled. <laughs> and, and my point on that is we're a little spoiled. Like, let's just enjoy this. Yeah, so what? So they go to the second round this year instead of the conference finals again. Um, I don't think this team by any I've, – I've said this on other shows – I don't believe that this is finals or bust and it's a disappointing year in any way. I think that you have to grind a little bit. Here's another team that I like to equate this to, which is out of left field a little bit. Isaiah Thomas's Pistons, you know, Isaiah Thomas and, and, and Bill and beer got together in the very early eighties and they grinded, they grinded for like six, seven years. They went to the second round one year. They lost in the first round the next year. I mean, today in the blogosphere, the Twitter sphere, everybody would hit the panic button. Right. But they held it together. They get to a finals in 88. They break in, they, they, they lose in heartbreaking fashion. Then they break through in 89 and they win. They break through in 90 and they win again. Isaiah has a devastating injury in 91 and the era is over. But they had an 11-year run. 
And, and, and this Nuggets team could do that, just like the Raptors and just like those Pistons teams. I think they just have to grind a little bit, and that's what you got to do when you're a small market. You know, Anthony right. Davis or Giannis Antetokounmpo or whoever the superstar du jour of the day is, they're not walking through that door. So yeah. you got to just keep grinding, and if you have enough pieces in place, you swing for a star who's on a one-year deal, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll win something. Well, it's it was one of those interesting things because, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, our former, my, my, my acquaintance and your friend, uh, Masai did that twice, uh, with, and he did that to a lesser extent with Andre Iguodala, which famously sure. spectacularly exploded later on. And then there was the, uh, Kawhi Leonard thing, both, uh, it resulted in guys leaving, but one was a 57 win season. The other was a, was a NBA title. And, 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 you know, you know, Masai, I I don't want to spend the whole show talking about that whole situation, but, you know, Masai and George left in 2013, had had they both stayed here, that team probably makes the playoffs the next year without Iguodala, just like the Raptors made the playoffs without Kawhi Leonard, because he built a great foundation. So my point is Tim, Tim Connolly has, has built a wonderful foundation here. You keep Jokic, you keep Murray. Um, and when the time is right, you swing for the fences with your other guys and you bring in a star to compliment them. And maybe we will have a shot at an NBA finals. It just, it's just, not, it's not going to be this year. No. Um, all right. So we're, we're kind of, kind of, kind of moved. This is going to be a hard pivot, but I brought Andy on to talk about various things going on in the state of Colorado. Um, and, uh, you were a big part, uh, both of our, both of you, uh, both of us, excuse me, know Chris Fuselier very well. Um, he has been, my brother. He has been, uh, I would say, how to describe Chris on this, vociferous about certain things on on Twitter. Every Um, restaurant in the state of Colorado should send, and I'm not going to pronounce his last name right, even though we're very good friends, um, should send Chris Fusilet a thank you note. Every restaurant in the state of Colorado. He has been fighting for bars and restaurants from day one of this pandemic. We've been, we've had the honor and the privilege of serving together on the mayor, mayor, uh, Denver mayor Hancock's appointed restaurant uh, relief committee. And uh, it's really more of a hospitality relief committee. And Chris is, um, Chris is the best and he is so passionate. He knows his stuff. Um, and he just, uh, has kind of sliced and diced the regulations. He's found the inaccuracies and the inconsistencies and the arbitrary nature of some of the regulations. And he has been an advocate for the industry. He's taken a lot of punches for it. Um, and, uh, he stood up for all of us and you gotta give mayor Hancock full credit. Not only did he allow bars and restaurants in Denver to expand their premises outdoors, which we worked on with him, but he also, uh, strongly encourage Denver to participate in the five-star certification program, which is a state-sanctioned program that allows bars and restaurants, if they comply with a certain level of sanitation and health standards and such, to expand their occupancy beyond what the regulations allow. And even though Chris has been feisty on Twitter and sometimes he attacks the mayor, sometimes he supports the mayor, the mayor went to Blake Street Tavern to present Chris with his certificate as Chris was the very first restaurant that was approved for that program. So Chris has been a superstar. The mayor has been supportive. The governor has met with Chris uh, privately and give the governor credit for that. I give him huge credit for that. He's a friend of ours as well. Mm-hmm. And um, we're getting somewhere, but I'm happy to talk about this stuff because I certainly have strong opinions on it. Well, yeah. And, and here's what I want to ask you because I, I, as someone who's not a business owner, um, 
how do you and how do you kind of bridge the, the, the kind of the contradiction of this COVID thing to where you are wanting to open safely and do it, but trying to prevent as many infections as possible? And how has it been? How can you do that? Is it possible to even yeah. bridge that gap? Well, I'm in the worst possible business for a pandemic because yes, I'm a business owner, but the business that I own, well, amongst the businesses that we own <clears throat> is called Trax, which is a nightclub and Exto, which is an event center. Right. And unfortunately we are literally in the business of gathering people. Right. Now a restaurant is also in the business of gathering people, but there's a subtlety. When you go to a restaurant, you sit at a table and you'd stay in one spot and presumably you arrive with someone you chose to arrive with mm -hmm. and, or chose to meet there. And because the tables are spaced apart, you can ensure a relative level of safety that's above and beyond what a nightclub, concert venue, event center, or a Pepsi center can do. Because now you're taking thousands of strangers and you're, or hundreds of strangers and you're intermingling and you're not sitting in place, which means as you're moving around the room, whether you're dancing or you're walking or whatever you're doing, you're breathing on other people or breathing into other people's air, whatever. And so gathering is the worst possible business to be in during a pandemic. Restaurants are probably the second worst. Um, <clears throat> so my opinion to answer your question, sorry for the long-winded answer, it's, it's a contradiction because we, on the one hand, we have to make money to keep our employees employed. That's number one. Uh, number two, we have expenses, whether we're open or closed, which I think a lot of politicians don't understand. Uh, we have to pay our property taxes, whether we're open or closed. We have to pay our insurance bill, whether we're open or closed. Even if we're closed, we still have a utility bill on some level. Um, so and we, you know, there's all these things you have to, oh, we still have to pay rent, whether you're open or closed. And so I wish our regulators had approached this a little more surgically and thought about the businesses that are most affected by this and given us relief in that manner. Instead, what they did is they basically shot a giant gun out with tons of money and they spread it across every business in the country, regardless of their business type, regardless of their revenue decline. And those of us that are in the gathering business are still suffering, whereas everybody else, you know, made it through just fine. And so it's a huge, it's a huge problem. Um, now I'm of the mindset, and this is going to be a little controversial probably, but now I'm of the mindset that as we vaccinate the vulnerable, so that's people over 70, like my parents, they just got their second shot. As we vaccinate the vulnerable, as we vaccinate frontline workers, I think we need to get teachers done, ASAP, and then we need to get grocery store workers and hospitality workers done, ASAP. Once all those folks are vaccinated, let's say that's the end of this month, I believe you got to let the rest of us go about our business and you got to let the rest of us gather again. And those of us that are in a younger demographic that don't have access to the vaccine yet, I think our risk of ending up in a hospital bed is so de minimis that you got to let us go about, go about our business again. That's it. That means, I mean, by the way, that means concerts, events, weddings, you name uh, nuggets games, bring them all back and bring them all back in March. Now is it, it, it do you let me just throw this at you because I, I I'm I don't know I I have a lot of friends like you who are in business and have really suffered uh, economically uh, since this has happened um, I I put that failure on the government I'll be honest with you um, but uh, particularly the federal government which was like yeah 
let's just leave you to the wind, you know? And I hate that. But on the other side of it, I'm like, once they started shutting down everything after they, uh, after its restrictions were eased up to, I think it was October or November, once they started shutting everything down, infections started seem to seem to come down again. Is, do you think that is a coincidence or is that something that, uh, um, you think it's just you, a result. Sorry, of, are you saying that the shutdown was in fact effective because uh, uh, our rates did come down? I, I think that eventually, because uh, I, I don't know what strain was moving through Colorado, but it got really bad in December. Uh, but I think it was like end of November, I think Polis basically- Oh, you're talking about down. the new shutdown around Thanksgiving. Okay, yeah, yeah. so it was effective. Hey, look, shutdowns, look, the, uh, my opinions aside, our elected leaders are not, morons okay they read the data they don't want to shut businesses down okay the governor of colorado doesn't wake up in the morning and say i want to shut down every restaurant in the state of colorado that's a horrible choice that he had to make because of the data so there's no question that restrictions shutdowns have a positive effect on the virus limiting the spread of the virus my counter to that would be you can't eliminate it completely and because you can't eliminate it completely, you might as well let businesses open modestly. And that's really what they did. I mean, by allowing businesses after New Year's to be open at 25% occupancy, which by the way, you can't make money on 25% occupancy, but at least you have a lifeline to the spring when the weather gets better. Right. Um, I thought that was a very smart decision because we've not seen a precipitous case spike in Colorado and yet businesses are open. So that's a huge positive. And it bought our government time to get folks vaccinated in January, which was really good. Um, So I think the governor of Colorado, you know, um, should he decide to aspire for a higher office someday, I think he can stand on that debate stage and say that he handled this better than any governor in the state of Colorado, in the state, in the the country. Look at uh, the opposite effect. Look at the governor of California. Um, California has been doubly successful. They have successfully not shut down the virus while also shutting down every single business. And what that tells me is, People will gather no matter what. So you're better off allowing modest gathering, modest dining, whatever, than shutting everything down completely because people begin to rebel against it. And it has caused a huge case spike in California. The the lockdown in California actually backfired because it was too onerous and it was too long. Whereas Colorado's was short and sweet and we got back on our feet with with modest occupancy. Well, it's, it's interesting to think about, Andy, and I, I'm really kind of torn because, like I said, I, 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 I have been basically isolated since last February, and uh, it's killing me. I, I'll be honest with you. There's, there's no one should have to do this sort of thing. But when you have p- people in your family who are immunocompromised, like my brother with leukemia and sure. my, dad, my dad's uh, COPD, it, I mean, both of that could kill him. So there's no way I'm going to risk giving that to them. Um, but everyone else is in a different situation. So I will project my situation on everyone else. It's just not possible. Um, There is no one size fits all. Uh, Colorado has been extremely remarkable with the way we've handled this, even with our spike in in November and December. Um, I will be honest with you. Um, Even considering that the shutdown or lockdown part two came pretty late and was pretty short, um, we've managed to drive down infections. Um, so on the flip side of this, Andy, you know, you're talking about businesses and the way businesses have to operate. Um, in November, we elected a new president. Um, and he has seemed to be a little, at least a little more clear than our previous one. Has that helped at all a better federal direction for businesses like you? Or is, that, or, or is this a situation where 
Jared Polis, uh, the governor of Colorado, affects you more directly than anything at the federal level could? Yeah, the governor affects us much more directly because the governor, <clears throat> the way the rules work is the governors of each state basically lay down the laws and then the mayors can make them stronger if they want to. They cannot make them looser without a variance. So the governor has way more impact on our day to day than the federal government, where the federal government has positive or negative impact, of course, is on the stimulus side. Right. And um, I actually think we need to give Donald Trump, dare I say, credit and Steve Mnuchin credit for getting the stimulus package out the door that they did in March um, of 2020, the PPP program. Now, I think that it was, <clears throat> I think, like, as I said earlier, they made a few mistakes. I think they made some mistakes in terms of it wasn't means tested for businesses that were really suffering. Uh, it just went to every business. Um, it basically forced you as an employer to keep your employees on your payroll, whether they had to work or not, which basically turned us into de facto unemployment agencies as opposed to using those funds for things that we needed like rent and insurance and property taxes. However, it was well intended. It got the money at the door quickly and it bought us all two months. The problem is that the virus didn't buy us all two months. So when those two months were up and our PPP money ran out, uh, at least those of us in the gathering business, we had no, we had didn't, still didn't have a business to give to employ those people again, which was unfortunate this time around under this Congress uh, with collaboration with the, this white house, They've done it a little bit smarter. Uh, the new PPP program gives you a much longer period with which to dispense the funds to hire people. It gives you a higher percentage where you can use the funds to pay your occupancy costs. But again, they learned the lesson from the last administration that had really good intentions there. And you asked me about my business. You know, we believe that we are eligible for a venue specific grant and we're just waiting to see the language on that. That's coming as well. Yeah. And I believe Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado gets a lot of credit because he really fought for that. And that's for concert venues, um, venues like Exto, and uh, we'll be taking advantage of that should we be fortunate enough to comply. So, uh, I mean, I think this, this, this administration's learned the mistakes of the last one and um, has probably done a little bit of a better job. But uh, again, in the defense of the last administration, <clears throat> this was a new thing and they scrambled and they did the best they could as fast as they could. So. Um, but hopefully we'll get smarter as we go forward. I know we'll get smarter on the science side, that's for sure. Well, yeah, and, and, and as this thing has evolved, um, it, 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 is, it has been odd how, and I'll, I'll, I keep coming back to this, I, I'm not an epidemiologist, but it's odd how- You're not an epidemiologist, Jeff? I, I, I am not, I am not, but I do play one on television. Um, we, the, how, it hit a peak, this, these infections, and then suddenly they started dropping. And someone was talking about it. Uh, 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 I read something today how they, they were thinking there's a seasonality to this, maybe not a consistent seasonality, but there is one. Um, and this is probably buying us a little time to get, I mean, I, I, I haven't, my dad, I'm still struggling to get him vaccinated. Um, and, and that has been uh, a pain in the ass, I will tell you that. Um, but there has been a, a, a kind of a decline here. So maybe the virus is giving us, and I hate ascribing human attributes to a virus, but maybe it's giving all of us a chance to get these vaccinations out because there's nothing that is going to help us out more businesses, uh, individuals, people like me, uh, than getting people getting vaccinated. That's going to be the gateway to everything coming back. And again, to repeat what I said earlier, I think priority number one, folks like your brother, folks like your father, you've got to get them vaccinated ASAP. And I'm not Mr. Tough Guy over here, but the rest of us can take our chances. Um, I mean, if you're in our age profile, 
the chance of you know, ending up in a hospital bed is so de minimis that I, I don't, you know, look, I'm not going out of my way to get COVID, but I don't lose sleep at night thinking I could get it. But I was losing sleep at night thinking my parents could get it. Right. So as long as they are vaccinated, um, again, the vulnerable, let the rest of us go about our business. We will be okay. Uh, you are- I I'm would, not an epidemiologist either. No, no, no. We, we are armchair epidemiologists. Um, I, I will just kind of like to give people an idea. Maybe this is more in depth about you as a person <laughs> that the people who have, you've been on this podcast a lot, uh, not for a while, but a lot. People don't know this about you. This is a different side of uh, Andy than that, 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 that they have not been exposed to. How would you describe Andy Feinstein as someone who is just a, 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 a ideology. All right. Maybe you don't have an ideology, but I have how, an ideology. Okay. I have a very firm ideology. Okay. You tell, you tell the people, uh, the people in CSG land, how, what is your uh, uh, ideology? Because I think the, they're probably getting an idea of what it is like so far, but kind of in uh, like uh, illuminate people, what exactly your point of view is. Do you mean political ideology? Uh, let's yeah, let's call it that. So uh, for starters, I'm a registered independent and have been for a very long time. So that should give you some indication of my political ideology. Right. Um, in 1980, my father and then my mentor, Marty Chernoff, uh, two straight Jewish Republicans started a gay nightclub called Tracks in 1980 in Denver, Colorado. Right. And on the front door of Tracks, they said that we are a, we are a gay run uh, and by that, because all their managers were gay, uh, we are a gay uh, establishment, we are a gay run establishment, and we are welcoming of everybody who is accepting of our lifestyle. And that was on the front door in 1980. <clears throat> and they used the word acceptance very specifically, because in those days, the word was tolerance, you would tolerate someone who was gay, or right. black, or Jewish, or a woman or whatever. And toleration is a very condescending word. Right. Acceptance is a very warm and welcoming word. And that was the word that they had on their front door. And that is my credo of life. So if you ask me what my ideology is, I accept everyone. Right. Uh, I am Jewish, although I'm relatively agnostic. But in, in, in the Old Testament, they tell you the story um, of the Jews who were enslaved in Egypt and were freed. That's what the Passover story is about and inherited their own land eventually, which is now called Israel. And the parable of that story is, is that because we were once enslaved and we were once strangers in somebody else's land, we must be welcoming to others who are strangers and or were perhaps enslaved in another land before they came here. So from an ideology standpoint, I am an adamant, adamant believer in acceptance and inclusion and diversity, <clears throat> but <laughs> here's the but. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe that that should dis your, your, who you are should never, ever disqualify you from any opportunity in this world, but it shouldn't also automatically qualify you. And I worry that we've gone way too off, far off to the left and in this narrative. And I believe that we need to kind of stick to the center where we can gather as a diverse group of voices and not exclude people who may, God forbid, have a different opinion than ourselves. So ideologically, I'm all about acceptance. Um, and uh, I can just tell you kind of the checkpoints when it comes down to government for me. I think the government has four basic responsibilities. Responsibility number one is to defend us. 
Now that's from a foreign invasion, like a war type situation or terrorism. Right. That could be from a pandemic. Uh, it could be a domestic defense. Like that's where the police department comes into play. Okay. So I believe that the government's number one job is to defend us. The second job that I believe the government has is to educate us. And regardless of our skin color or where we're from or who we were born to, we are all entitled, in my opinion, to the same level of education. Okay. Uh, similar to that, I believe, number three, I believe the government has an obligation to provide the same infrastructure to everybody, regardless of their skin color and regardless of where they were born. And by infrastructure, I mean hard infrastructure like roads, clean water, sewage, and so forth, but also soft infrastructure like access to broadband, um, research and development, things like that that benefit people. And then numbers four and five, which are the ones that I think we debate a lot as a society, I think the government has an obligation as a baseline to provide basic health care. Uh, now, I think you should be able to buy private insurance, and I think insurance should be a for-profit industry. And if you want to, you know, uh, if you want to go get yourself some private insurance, you should get it. But if you can't afford it, I believe the government should provide a baseline of insurance. If you have a heart attack, you shouldn't go bankrupt. And then number five, I think the government, back to the education one, maybe I should just tie it to number two. Yeah. If you can't afford a private school, I think the government should pay for public school. Um, so that's my general ideology. Now, all that said, I'm a diehard capitalist. I think the government should get out of the way. I don't think the government should be over-regulating your business. I think you should have every opportunity in the world to become a millionaire, a gazillionaire, a billionaire if you want to. And I don't think the government should force you to give it back. I think that's up to you if you built it yourself. Um, I think that, uh, am I scaring you yet? <laughs> I knew um, this about you. The people are yeah, yeah. people uh, then. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, so, so, so my ideology is one of, I think of what I would call social compassion and social equity, but also uh, diehard capitalism. I do think that you have to encourage people to grow the pie. You have to encourage people to take risks. You have to encourage, there's a reason why Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, even though he was born in South Africa, um, and Jeff Bezos came from this country yeah. because we encourage risk and innovation and ingenuity. And the more rules and regulations you throw up, you throw in front of would-be or could-be um, visionaries of capitalism, the less you're going to get. And I think that's a huge mistake. And I am very worried that, uh, especially in Denver, I am very worried that uh, there's a there's a notion of overregulation that's going to kill the golden goose here. Um, you know, you sound I, I I I've always described you this way. I uh, when Nate and I've talked about it, I've do, I've always called it, uh, talk uh, referred to you as a Colorado libertarian. I'm a little <laughs> bit of a libertarian. Yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, no, a dire libertarian is pretty scary. Like I, I I'll admit it. Like, I don't <laughs> like guns. I mean, I think you can have a gun to defend your home, but I don't think you need an AK-47. Yeah. And a libertarian wouldn't agree with that. Um, I don't think you should be allowed to smoke indoors unless it's your own private domicile because you're now hurting somebody else. A libertarian would not agree with that. Right. Um, I do agree with speed limits. I do agree with re uh, elevator inspections and some things like that that libertarians probably wouldn't agree <laughs> with. Um, but uh, I don't understand why I need a liquor license. I don't understand why the government tells me when to open and close my doors. If, a, if an adult wants to come to my bar at four in the morning, why can't I sell him a drink at four in the morning? Yeah. Um, I don't understand rules like that. 
Um, and uh, uh, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of subtlety probably to my argument, but I'm a quasi maybe liberal libertarian. Yeah, Colorado libertarian. Colorado libertarian, only you don't smoke weed. So, I mean, that's basically, no. that's, that's basically. But, by the way, but by the way, I've got no problem with smoking weed. And the yeah. only reason I don't smoke weed, is it goes back to when I was young and single. I wanted to go out and see people. I didn't want to, I don't like video games and I don't like leftovers. So there was no <laughs> point in me sitting around at home smoking weed. And when I was in college, all the guys that smoked weed never did anything. They just sat around. I like to go out and do things. Right, right. And, and uh, look, I, I don't, everyone who's listening to CSG politics know that I have a political point of view. And my, my job here is not to attack Andy. Because quite frankly, I, I, uh, until, and I said this to Tim Miller, I had Tim Miller from The Bulwark on, on this about yeah. weeks ago. And I explained to him that uh, I didn't realize that I would be considered conservative, even though I am pretty much a bog standard Democrat, um, until I got online. And then I realized that everyone there is, is, is way, 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 way to the left of me. I pretty much am pretty standard Democrat. I'd be basically hard D next to Jeff. But the, apparently my idea that you need to have businesses that are okay uh, is a controversial opinion. Uh, now for what well <laughs> I, 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 there's a there has been this huge shift there's a far left shift someone said to me the other day that i've turned into a republican i said no i haven't i've stood in the same place for the last whatever you pick it 10 years 15 years i proudly voted for barack obama twice um i have stayed in the same spot the problem is, is the left has gone very far left and this cancel culture is really scary um, I'll give you a quick anecdote. You know, Trax is in big trouble, as you know, yeah. because we are a nightclub and nightclubs aren't exactly suited for pandemics. Right. So we've been relegated to dinner theater, okay, where you yeah. get a reserved seat and you can watch a show on the stage. So we had an all male review burlesque type show. This is over the summer. And uh, I think it was a seven, eight man performance show, a uh, couple white folks, a couple Hispanic folks, a couple African American folks in the show. So the producer gave us a poster to post on Facebook. The, produ the poster only had three white folks in it. And the crap we took for only having white faces on the poster that got posted on Facebook, that we got crap for it from, uh, from our own customers, from our own people that supposedly support tracks, which I think is the most inclusive business in the Rocky Mountain West. Yeah. And the producer pulled the show and wow. canceled it. So our bartenders who are literally starving didn't get their shifts that night. We, paid, we took care of them out of our own pocket. My point in that story, that anecdote, is the left, the canceled culture left has gone way too far. It wasn't enough for someone to just privately email the producer and say, hey, you know, in the future, we'd appreciate if you had some diversity in your poster, which is a fair thing to ask. But it's instead to insist on canceling a show and to smear someone in the court of public opinion um, because they didn't do things your way. I find that that cancel culture woke left, whatever we want to call it is far more divisive than anything I've ever seen on the right. And it's, it worries me and it tarnishes the democratic brand. Um, and it almost cost him the election, by the way. Um, well, you know, he, Biden didn't exactly have a clean sweep. He won, but a lot of Republicans won down ticket. Yeah. It wasn't exactly a thumping. And so I do think that uh, we gotta be careful about how far left the left goes. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you this way, and I do disagree that there's equivalence between the, the far branches of either. I mean, look, 
we just had an insurrection at the Capitol. So I, <laughs> I'm like, I well, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe I, uh, maybe it's because you know, fair enough. Maybe it's because I give the left more credit, <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just, you know, okay, but yeah. I mean, and there's no question. Hey, look, there's crazies on both sides. And I'm not one of these guys that says it's equally crazy. And that's a matter of opinion, right? I mean, you got QAnon, you know, lunatics on the right who believe in Jewish space lasers. And on the left, you know, I've yeah. got the second coming of Che Guevara. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what my, <laughs> yeah, that's, I, that's why I'm, a, I'm either a John Hickenlooper Democrat or a Mitt Romney Republican, whatever you want to call me, but I'm in that middle somewhere. Well, I want to, <laughs> before, we, uh, before we get out of here, uh, and thank you for coming on, man, um, about well, how long ago was the Pulse nightclub thing? Four years ago? Five years ago almost. Right? No, that was 2016. Yeah, yeah, that was 2016. So it'll be five years this summer. You did a great thing, and I want people to understand as they were listening to this uh, podcast. You held a uh, uh, vigil. I was it that night uh, after it. I think it was. Uh, the shooting happened on a. I think it was on a. I should know this. I think it was on. We may have done it that night. I think it was, it was on a Saturday night. night. We woke. We woke up Sunday morning. And we Sunday. had a vigil on Sunday night. Yeah. Right. And of course, you know, I know a lot of the. I know a lot of the people who work at tracks and all that stuff. And I, I, I was at, um, obviously, you know, as a gay man, I felt really responsible uh, to go down there. The, the, the great thing about this was this vigil uh, this memorial was fantastic. And you had Michael Bennett down there. You had, um, uh, Mike Coleman down there. You had, uh, Mike Kaufman, Kaufman, Mike Coleman, Derek Coleman, you had on there. No, uh, I did not have Derek <laughs> Coleman. He wouldn't uh, fit. God, yes. um, and you had a, a, a was the mayor down there too? I think. Oh, we had the mayor. We had uh, we had Governor Hickenlooper. We had yeah. Senator Ben. We had we had a cat. We had the whole crew. And you know that was. Um, yeah, I remember gay nightclubs aren't just nightclubs, and you know this because right. you know you and I kind of grew up together in this world. Um, gay nightclubs aren't just nightclubs, they're sanctuaries. Right. And they are sanctuaries where we don't just say, oh, you can be yourself. We encourage you to be yourself. And we are, and, and, and it doesn't matter so much these days, thankfully, but in the old days, those sanctuaries were the difference between someone uh, living or being suicidal. You know, they, they, they literally, um, gay nightclubs, whether it was our nightclub or others, were beneficial to folks' mental health because it was a sanctuary. And to think that someone could pierce a sanctuary and commit an act of violence like that was, a, was really an act of violence against any sanctuary. Right. Um, and so we took that very seriously and that's why that vigil was so important because we wanted to stand up in front of the whole world, not just the city of Denver and the state of Colorado. We wanted to stand up in front of the whole world and say, look, we are inclusive, you assholes. Mm -hmm. And don't even dare think about coming into our sanctuary again. It was weird. You know, the first call I got, on Sunday morning, well, I got two or three calls on yeah. Sunday morning. One of the first calls I got was from Mayor Hancock, wow. which is why I will always defend Mayor Hancock. And he said, what can we as a city do for you? Yeah. And he's like, I'm gonna have the chief of police call you. We're gonna give you extra protection and we stand with you. Anything we can do, we are here with you. Yeah. And, it was, and the mayor sent me his aide, Amber Miller, who's still a good friend of mine. And she helped us coordinate that vigil that night. And that's why I will always stand by Mayor Hancock because he's always been a wonderful friend to our community and our business. Um, 
And uh, we got to, you know, just like we got to push back against this woke left, unfortunately, or this lunatic right, we got to push back on those that want to break up our sense of inclusion and acceptance. Well, I, I got I to gotta tell you, the person who stood out to me in that visual was Michael Bennett. He was, yeah. it was amazing. It was a great speech he gave. Uh, he's very funny. Um, it, it was, it was he and I, and leaving it, talking to my friend, William, who, you know, and, um, we, we were talking about how much empathy he showed, uh, and Mike Kaufman struggled a little bit in that, in that situation. I knew I could tell he wasn't comfortable. Um, I don't think he knew what the word LGBTQ meant or the acronym <laughs> meant uh, yeah. uh, at the time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, now he knows it, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure. And mayor of, uh, of Aurora. Um, but th- that, is, that's, that, is what, that is what I remember most. And Andy was so responsible for that. And you, uh, I don't know if I ever thought that properly thanked you for that. I mean, you've been my friend for over a fucking decade. So obviously <laughs> you take, you say you kind of forget things, but I, you and I aren't just friends, Jeff, we will be friends until we're dead. That's <laughs> what kind of friends we are. I'm serious. We are. We, are. we will be, fr- you are such a wonderful friend. I mean, if a month goes by and I haven't talked to you, you'll just send me a text and say, hi, how's it going? You are the best. You are a wonderful friend. And um, I appreciate you saying all that. And I hope I'm not coming across as, um, I'm really not angry in any way uh, about my ideology. I, I, I actually think that I'm trying, I want to attract more people back to the middle. I, I think that the word progressive, uh, the progressives in my opinion are regressive. And uh, to me, progress is staying in the middle as a, as a mixed, diverse, joint community, not dividing people just because they have a different, polit- you know, just because someone wears a MAGA hat doesn't mean they're a bad person, you know? Um, just because someone wears a DU Pioneer shirt doesn't mean they're a bad person. Um, and, uh, and, and, and just like someone who, you know, who may be of, uh, um, just like if a man decides to wear high heels and makeup, that doesn't make him a bad person or her a bad person. Yeah. And so I think we have to get back to the middle. Um, yeah. And that's my, uh, that's my ideology for you and your listeners today. <laughs> well, uh, we had you for a limited time today, so I better let you go get to your busy, as, uh, as we've discussed on, the, uh, on via text and all of, uh, on this podcast at times, Andy is the busiest man in the world. Andy, that's not yeah, true. He has um, got many obligations. That's not true. I would love to do this more often. I always say that. <laughs> and then you forget to invite me for like three months at a time. So this is on you. But <laughs> okay. I... I would love to come back on and we can talk about this stuff. We can talk nuggets. We can talk business, whatever you want to do. You guys, you know, CSG has been a stalwart in the local podcast community here in, in Denver. And um, I, uh, you know, I always appreciate you including me. Speaking of inclusion, I like being included on the CSG podcast. CSG's podcast all good. Yeah. yeah, of course. Um, and next time you come on, we're going to have to talk about, uh, the Carmelo Anthony trade. So uh, that's and we do need to do a reunion out. show. Doesn't that? Uh, yeah, we need to do a reunion show. So with uh, we'll with Anthony. Nate, if your schedules, you know, are able to coincide. I you know. know. And, but Nate, Nate's also the he's the second busiest man in the world. Uh, so uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, I appreciate it, and uh, thanks once again to Andy Feinstein.